This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Book Ride Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books reading, except that for the third week in a row, we are not doing that. We are now, after two weeks of holiday recommendations, we are jumping into our favorite reads of the year. I think for those of you who've been playing along, you may know that I pay attention to language, and so does Rebecca. You may notice in Best Reads of the Year, we are not saying the best books of 2021, the greatest, the whatever. It's our favorite read. So I've got a couple backlist things. We haven't talked about anything like that, but it's fair game. If I read it in 2021, it is eligible to be on my list. Rebecca, is that what you were coming with too? Or yes. I don't know how much backlist you're doing these days. I'm doing, I did more front list this year than last year because I've got the ability to read serious books back in 2021. Yeah. It wasn't just uh, me and, you know, now I can't remember the guy who wrote Charlotte's Web. What is his oh, name? Oh, come on. E.B. White. E.B. White. It's Friday yes. in my soul, Jeff. And that's like, okay. I know. It's that's the Friday right. of the year. E.B. White. It was. I was like, W.E.B., that's not right. <laughs> it wasn't just me and E.B. White sitting on our farm in Maine trying to find some comfort this year. Um, I have a couple backlist, but they are recent backlist. Most okay. everything um, that was my favorite this year came out this year, but not all of it. Unsurprisingly, for those who've been listening to some of the books we've talked about extensively make both of our lists. And we're going to talk about that group kind of like the BR pod RSTNLE picks. Mm -hmm. um, some of it is, I think, I, I find that my fondness for a book grows if I talk about it, right? Yes. So there's, there's that piece of it too that we had the conversation, but we're also stacking the decks. We pick the books to talk about because we think we're going to like them. And I think, I don't know what our track record is about choosing something to read together and talk about on the show that we've been disappointed, but it feels like the hit rate was extremely high this year oh, it was for things year. we decided to talk about. And I wonder if too that dragged you kicking and screaming, or at least dragged you a little bit out of Maine, that we had some unmissable picks, right? We had a, we had a Colson Whitehead. We mm -hmm. had... Uh, Lauren Groff. Uh, we had an Ishiguro, which frankly did kick. It, it kind of that was a turning point for me. Claire in the Sun, yes, in middle of the year to really look at the front list again. I, I'm noodling with a 2022 only front list reading year. Hmm. I've always wanted to do this and re and really try to keep up with the books it week in week out, month in month out that are the most interesting. Um, maybe we'll talk about that at some point in the new year. I was looking at Publishers Lunch does a list of lists where it scores basically the appearance of books on different lists. And I don't know if we're norm core or what, Rebecca, but a lot of our picks are on there. And the ones that I didn't pick, I haven't read yet. So I suspect that if I had read the, all the aggregated top 10 books that are on public, like because it's like The Prophet by Robert yeah. Jones, a, a debut book I didn't get to, um, the love song of W.B. Du Bois I didn't get to yet, you know, like the, the Lincoln Highway, which is on my shelf, hell of a book, which I'm halfway through. It's like, it looks like if I'd read all of them, I would just have the same list. So I don't know what that says. But am I right? Am I good? Am I a barometer? Or am I just normie? Everyone, I'm a, aggregate me, baby. I don't, I don't know what to say about this. 
<laughs> just as special as everybody else. <laughs> just as um, spe- so what I need to do is read them as they come out and like score them yeah. to see if I'm getting swept up. So I, I'm thinking about having a little shape to my reading life as yeah. I'm thinking more about the present you and know, the future and being plugged in. That's a, a really interesting question to pose for yourself for reading. And I had an experience pretty similar to that for the years that I was hosting all the books where I was reading right. front list, like right as the front list was coming out. And my overall satisfaction with my reading life was lower than than it is hmm. now. And I think because there is some benefit to letting a thing come out. And if you're on the fence about it, you can wait and see if somebody that you right. know and trust likes it or if, what the overall conversation around it is. I think 2021 had a high hit rate in general because a lot of these were supposed to come out in 2020 and were delayed. So we got like a real bumper crop of of big books. And Clara and the Sun was also a big turning point for me because I don't know that my heart was like ready for serious literary Mm. fiction yet but I was not going to miss a new Ishiguro and we were committed to talking about it on the show and that I still like very vividly remember sitting down with the hardcover and opening it and being like that sinking into the first five or ten pages and being like oh I remember this kind of feeling how nice this is and this is going to be good you know like just take me away Kazuo Ishiguro I think my, I don't know that I'm going to try to do all front list in 2022, but there is something to be said for having a real sense of the books that came out in the year and the things that I didn't get to this year that are also showing up on those best of yeah. lists are things that I'm going to try to read. I know. You know, I traditionally use the holiday couple of weeks to try to catch up on stuff that I missed. So there's, you know, I didn't get to the new Claire Vey Watkins yet. I didn't get to Night oh, Bitch right. yet. There's a couple yes. other things that I really wanted to read this year and just didn't have time because time is finite. I'm going to talk about that in one of my picks later. Um, But I'm interested to catch up on those. And I suspect that you're right, that I'm going to have that same experience, that they're all going to be as good as, or, you know, generally as good as the best of lists are claiming them to be. I think it was just a good, really strong year. Well, I said before, I mean, we had a moment on an earlier episode of like, like, Books are great. Like kind of remembering books are great. <laughs> right. And I think that point about Claire and the Sun, I hadn't really thought about it too much until, you know, I just said what I said and then what you said. There, there's a case to be made. Now, this is a weird sort of like Jeff-like hook, but like what are the most 10, what are the 10 most important pages you read in a given? Mm. I think the first 10 pages of Claire and the Sun might be the most important 10 pages I read this year just yeah. because stylistically, artistically, what it achieved. But like you said, it did something to me that helped me, reminded me, you know, waded me in, warm bathed me into both a comforting and challenging reading experience, which is really hard because that's kind of what we want, right? I mean, those of us who make reading a part of what we do that don't just want it to be comfort or escapist, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let me say, if that's what you want book for, completely great. great. But that's not what I look for all the time. Sometimes I want that, and sometimes I want to be feeling like I'm being stretched and grown and challenged and learning something new, having a different experience. And somehow Claire and the Sun did both at a moment where I could really use it. Sounds like you're saying kind of Yes, and I don't think it would have happened with every book. Like Harlem Shuffle was great, but I think if no, I had picked right. up Harlem Shuffle in that moment, like in March when Clara and the Sun came out, I don't think I would have had functionally the same spiritual experience of reading it mm-hmm. that Clara and the Sun gave me where it was like, right, this is what really great writing can do for how you feel in a moment. And when we talk about that ineffable thing that happens when you read a really great book and you're sort of lost in it and new ideas are opened up for you, 
to me, the, those first 10 pages of Clara and the Sun are one of the books that ep- really epitomize that. And it was like the exact right book for not even the right moment, but for getting me to the right moment. Like, I don't know that I could have read a bunch of the ones I read later in the year if I hadn't had mm. Clara and the Sun take me to that place to, that made me realize like, okay, this this is available to me. And it might be a little bit more work than it used to feel like. I might have to like, one of my meditation teachers calls it finding the practice edge, like the thing that is a little scary or that might feel uncomfortable, but you lean into trying to practice that. And certainly some of the like continuing to pick up thinky things into 2021 was about the practice, even when I didn't feel like that's the thing I wanted to read in the moment. Mm. And definitely remembering that I spent that time with Clara and the Sun and I could do that. Like when I picked up Matrix and it was a a totally different kind of writing than I expected. And it was like, oh, Lauren Groff's going to make me work a little bit here. Like, I don't know if that's what I thought was happening when I opened the new Lauren Groff, but I can hang for this. And I know I can hang for it right now because I could hang with Clara. I was going to, that's, it's funny you bring up Matrix. I was going to say, if, if Matrix came out at that moment, we were picking up Claire in the Sun, you know, does mm. the wheel turn differently for us in the year? I don't know. Cause I, I, I really like Matrix in a lot of ways. I think it's the most interesting book mm-hmm. I read, the most challenging, but, but it was maybe came at the right time and Clara paved a lot of ways. I didn't rank order my list, Rebecca. I don't know oh, if I you did, either, but maybe no. we, maybe we could say here for MVB, most valuable book. Mm. Can, do we have, a, do we have a mutual pick for Clara and the Sun? I think For so. both of us this yeah. year. Okay. Well, we're going to get into the rest, um, but first let's take a, a quick sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. 
Miss Wong got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. While we're on the congratulating each other for having mutually <laughs> similar and good taste, our first group of our favorite reads of the year, um, we'll call them the RST L&E group, which we're, we're Wheel of Fortune, and we're putting them on the board. We've talked about this a little bit before. There's a group. I th- it includes Clara, but Clara is the first among equals in this group, I would say. Mm-hmm. And they include Matrix, The Sentence, and Harlem Shuffle. Those yes. three round out our RST. There's four <laughs> that make up the five. Let me throw... Do you have Project Hail Mary on any of your lists anywhere? Oh, you know, I totally blanked on Project Hail Mary, but I should have put it on my list because it was a great thing. I think it maybe can be the E. In yeah. our RST mm-hmm. and LE. I wondered, we didn't mention in our pre-show, but now that I'm looking at my list, I think those five represent their front list. They're all fiction. They're all upper middle brow. Well, Project Hail Mary is genre, let's say. Um, and so is Harlem. Sh- I, I, but, they, but they all are in the middle of the bell curve for our, and I, I would say commercial fiction, upscale commercial fiction's taste. Mm-hmm. People like these books. Yep. They sell pretty well. They're not huge cultural moments. They're not going wild on TikTok. Only probably Project Tale Mary will be made into a movie. <laughs> so I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy with this group. If I got five fiction books like this every year, I guess novels, I don't have any short story collections on my list. I, I would call any year that leads off with five for my Wheel of Fortune picks a wonderful reading year. Rebecca, yes. what do you think? Pound for pound, these top five are about as satisfying as a top five can be. <laughs> and yeah, right. I'm feeling hard pressed right now to think of another year in recent memory where my top five were as overall just excellent mm. as as these top five. They're, they were, they're so good and they all did such interesting things since you mentioned you know that only project hail mary is likely to be made into a movie if you got to have some form of adaptation of the other four clara harlem matrix or the sentence i'm curious which one you would prioritize and what format you'd put it in because we're doing adaptation nation but also i think even before when we did book nerd movie club or i think most readers at this point do do this now when they're reading a book especially that they like i should say i don't know if you do some reading a book you don't like when it comes to fiction you start thinking about an adaptation mm-hmm. like i think it's a natural thing to do um so i thought about adaptations of them all i, I don't know so the question t- there's really two parts two ways of answering that one is what would you just like to see what they do mm. and two would be does it add something that you don't get or intensifies something else I think magical realism or supernatural or mythological religious elements are very hard to do well in the movies. And it makes me wonder about both The Sentence and Matrix. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw the movie of Beloved, and there's sort of a beloved element to Sentence in terms of a a figure that is non-corporeal that's really important. I think that's very hard to do on screen, a ghostly presence like that or a spirit presence. Similarly, Matrix, the pleasure of it on screen would be largely different than the pleasure of the text. I think it's a very writerly text. It's about reading expensively text. Now, there's a version of it that's really just about what it's like to get through the day in an Mm -hmm. abbey in the 11th century, which we talked about on the show. So I think that would be cool, but it would be different. I'm not looking for Claire in the Sun. I don't think there's anything left on the bone for me there, to be honest. In Project Hail Mary, it would just be fun to see how they, again, spoiler alert, there is a particular character that I think would be difficult it could be very cool or be 
kind of Jar Jar Binks. Uh, to be honest with you, I think it goes sideways. I think the one I'd like to spend filmic time in in the right hands is Harlem Shuffle. I think I would just like to see the production values and like really inhabit that world because um, I think that estimation of the book has grown in my mind. And I say I like it already, but I feel like I remember the vibe of that mm-hmm. book even more than I thought I would. And just wanting to spend time in the world of Colson Whitehead's 1950s Harlem underworld, but most of the people aren't that bad except that the ones that really are. And I, I, you know, if Steven Soderbergh or like I saw No Sudden Moves, which is starring John Cheadle came out this year, which is a smaller scale version of this. It's set in a contemporary, I think, no, it's, it's set early and it's, I think maybe in the sixties or seventies, I can't remember, but a full featured one where you're really kind of resplendent in Harlem of the fifties. Now I don't, it would cost a million dollars because you'd have to do CGI and get everything. But that one, if they could make it, I feel like that's the one I want to spend time in Rebecca. So that's my differential for those. Yeah. I had ruled out the sentence for the same reason. I think the supernatural elements would be hard to capture in a way that worked as well as they work on the page and that wouldn't Mm -hmm. veer into hokey or just not working. And same for Clara, that story feels so complete. Um, I don't feel like I want to see it. And this is how I tend to function with adaptations largely. Like if I really, really (laughs) loved the book and I felt like I had the complete experience, I am not in a hurry to see the adaptation. I could see like an HBO Max or Apple TV, like limited 10 episode series of Matrix that I think would be fascinating for people who like very quiet, thoughtful (laughs) kinds of living in the characters' heads stuff it wouldn't be a box office hit but i think ultimately i agree with you i'm in the same place if if i if i had somewhere i was gonna hang for 10 episodes or yeah i think it's i'd rather see harlem shuffle as a 10 or 12 hour situation than as a movie there's Mm. so much to happen in that world and just even to like be in the main character's head while he's sizing up the different rooms that he's in and the different pieces of furniture and what they tell him about those people i think good writers could do something with that on screen that would make that world really fun and just rich that's it's such a rich text in so many ways it's got the most action Mm -hmm. you know outside of project hail mary um even project hail mary is a lot of like in the best weird way of sitting around figuring stuff out, which can be a lot of fun. Um, If as rumored, it's going to be Ryan Gosling doing math about how to save the universe. Let's go. I'm ready Mm -hmm. right now. Um, Okay. So we got those off the board. Not a surprise probably to any of you, but in the full throated accounting of the truth of our aesthetic taste for the year, we had to do those. Now we're more into wild card. We can surprise ourselves and each other. Rebecca, I'm going to pass to you to, to lead off. Ooh, let's see, wild card. I'm just going to start with the, I don't know that this is a wild card of a book, but it's the first thing that I read in 2021. Mm. It was the right book for that time of year and that right time of, I think, where we were in the world, in life, and it was Wintering by Catherine May. Um, The subtitle is The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. (laughs) She wrote it before the pandemic. Uh, It was about a period of time in her life where her husband had been very ill, her son was experiencing some behavioral and potentially mental health related issues and had stopped going to school. She was having her own medical issues that ultimately resulted in leaving her job. And so there was a real, like, what are we doing 
here. Um, mm. And the way that she responded to it was to try to allow that time of life to be quiet and sort of fallow, um, to have a winter of the soul functionally. She takes a lot of walks. Um, she joins a group of women that do like basically cold water plunges, but not for the adventure thing, but for mm. the like every day we have this practice of we go and she lives in England and so the water is very cold there most of the time, but especially in the winter. Um, but go and like be in the cold water and see what that does for your mood and for knowing that you can do difficult things. Um, she kind of, she refers to herself when I was refreshing myself on the book earlier as like a secular mystic. And there's not really anything mystical to the writing, but for January of 2021, mm. when like vaccines existed, but I didn't know when I was going to get one. Um, things still felt like it's it's a dark time of the year. It felt still like a dark moment of the soul. And this book felt like a one of those literary moments that's the equivalent of like you go to church and feel like the preacher is preaching directly to you of someone being like, sometimes the thing we need to do in life is sit down and ha let the quiet, dark moment be a quiet, dark moment and trust that there is work that is happening in that time anyway. Like the fields are fallow, but they're fallow because something is going to come. Um, and if you can just hang, it's going to be okay. And I just found it really comforting to be in that moment with a writer who spoke about that experience and all the things that are hard about it and also the practice of doing that work and thinking of it as a practice like we are we are going to come to the other side of this thing but we don't know when and we're gonna have to do hard things to get to the other side of it um was really grounding for me and i think about it often i like i, I don't need to read wintering today but i really really needed to read it in january of this year and it just hit at the right moment so i felt like i needed to start my list with her interesting i don't have a um sort of sort of a soul sustaining title on my list that's mm -hmm. that's an interesting one to look at I, i'm going to start mine i've got a lot of pairs of books that are going into different slots this one i'm calling turns out people are right so i got to a couple <laughs> of backlist things that i hadn't read uh, a gentleman in moscow by immortals uh, and then um pachinko by min jin lee mm -hmm. turns out they're great both of them are great. A lot of people that I know and have similar reading taste to mine have read them and said they're great. Um, I think in terms of the single best, I don't know, like Pachinko is there with Claire in the Sun for me. Mm. Um, honestly, if, if I were really thinking about it differently, I think the thing that Pachinko does is a family saga over generations as well as I've ever seen it done. So it's sort of the best of a breed, whereas Claire in the Sun is sort of like nothing else I've read. So, that, that, you know, it's hard to compare how these things go. And then Gentlemen in Moscow, how fun literary fiction can be is sometimes hard to remember. Like both of these are historical fiction or up to historical fiction, but Gentlemen in Moscow, it's set in a particular hotel where an aristocrat become, he gets a sentence during the revolution, say, okay, you know, we could cut your head off because off with their heads is what's going on, Bolshevik Revolution. But not too bad. If you stay in this hotel for the rest of your life, you're, you can do that. So you house arrest of this hotel. And it's him trying to make his way through the 20th century or to the mid to late 20th century living in this hotel. And it starts out from a kind of comic um, farce. You can see sort of a Ray Fiennes in... Um, uh, what's the Wes Anderson movie? Grand Budapest mm. Hotel, kind of that kind of a figure of like goofy, but also urbane and mannered. 
but then over time is dealing with situations and starts to develop relationships within the hotel with unusual people that he wouldn't normally or in prior times had a relationship with. And it has a really warm, beautiful ending. That, that's really great. And the Pachinko is um, a Korean family over generations in Korea, north-south breaks. Some people come to America. Some people stay. There's a criminal element. There's some lost love. And just a completely engrossing, emotional... Melodrama is not the right word, but it's also not the wrong word about how these you know slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and love... Um, and circumstance affects this family over generations. And I've been waiting for the next Min Jin Lee. I think this one would be a wonderful series um, over time. We'd like to see a lot of great parts for people to play. So that's my turns out people were right about books. Uh, Gentleman Moscow and then Pachinko. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that about Pachinko because I've also not read that yet, but I bought it in paperback, like on a trip to Barnes and Noble earlier this year, thinking like, oh, maybe I'll read that sometime soon. And I think it'll be an end of the year. I would thing. be completely gobsmacked if you were not <laughs> enchanted and enthralled. I completely shocked if you weren't. I also would be based on everything that I've heard about mm -hmm. it. I think I just missed it the year that it Yep, came that's out. what happened to yep. me. And I, I think I frankly, so I follow our own Book Right Deals newsletter. You can go find it. And sometimes a book like this, I think Gentleman Moscow have the same thing. It's a dollar ninety nine. Bang. So I don't, yep. you know, it's there when I'm ready to pick something else. And like a lot of people, when I get on a reading roll, I really roll. So if I've got a lot of stuff in the in the holster, I really can get through it. Um, so I like to do that. And, you know, if it's not, you know, if, if I can't get it immediately at the library, I've got to hold on it. That can really throw. Th so I try to keep a nice stock of like the $2.99, $3.99 mm -hmm. Kindle books on my Kindle and iPad. And I pick up stuff like this and it turns out it's great. There's a lot of great books. Um, who knew? <laughs> so there you go. Uh, let's see. One of mine... Uh, just another great reading experience this year. Um, definitely a big work of fiction. I probably wouldn't have read if Clara hadn't gotten me back into that mode is Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Yeah, I haven't gotten to this one. I'm oh, so okay. So good. It's so long. It's it up is, there with love songs. It's, it's 600. I, it is th I'm really complaining long. to myself. It, it, it is really it should long. Be as, yeah. It's worth it, but it is really long. I know. Um, I know. I know. Big novel, multi-generational stuff happening here as well, but really about a woman who um, is growing up, com coming of age in the early 20th century. She wants to be a pilot, and that is not a thing that is accessible to women in general. It's not accessible, especially to girls from relatively poor families growing up in like the wilds of Missoula, Montana. Um, and the way that she ultimately gets access to flying lessons is through a relationship with a pretty bad adult man um, that becomes a part of her life. He's a bootlegger. Um, he becomes a part of her life for a long time. Her family history is very troubled. Um, and we see her life, we see a little bit of her parents, like that generation's life. And then we see elements of story from folks later in her family from future generations um, and other people related to her family story. And it moves back and it does a lot of the things that I love literary fiction to do. She's moving back and forth in time. There's a lot of like, you got to pay attention to details that are dropped in this place. And then the thread picks up with this other thing where all of a sudden that thing from 200 pages ago starts really making sense. Um, Shipstead's wrestling with a lot of complex and difficult subject matter here. So there are trigger warnings for domestic abuse, um, for rape, for 
couple other things. Um, it's so it can be a tough or sensitive read if you're if you have difficulty with some of those. Like do a do a more complete Google about what the trigger warnings are um, for this one. But I found it to just be. It is 600 pages long, but I was happy mm. with how Shipstead used all that space to to let this story have a big world, to really let us inhabit it with characters and spend time with more than one of the characters really intimately and and to do both a really fully realized story about this one unconventional woman's life and experience and relationships and also create big rich context around it for what that time was like in the world and um, what the constraints were of being a woman who was interested in something like learning how to fly also what the opportunities were and what the sort of what's appealing about being a person who's unconventional in some ways she really lets her characters be full and flawed and I really really appreciated it so I don't blame you if it's going to take you a while, you know, to get to Great Circle. If this is your pachinko in three years, I think that's okay. Um, it's still going to be 600 pages <laughs> in three years, though. It's not going to get shorter. It is. It's true. But I think I think that you would like it. Sometimes you have to declare um, artistic bankruptcy. And that's one I'm just I, I'm at okay. some point, maybe I will. Yeah. I love books about planes. This is I really should like this. I'm sure I will. Um but boy, it's daunting. Sam loves. I mean, we also read for our own reading experience in a lot of different ways. Some chunky ones in the mm-hmm. middle, and I kind of got. Uh, I, I got. Um, I don't know. Full at the reading buffet. <laughs> I guess I moved to mine. Speaking of chunky ones, I'm going back to. Turns out a book I really like. I really liked again. Mm. I, my only reread on the list this year is Dune by Frank Herbert. <laughs> reread it again for Adaptation Nation. It's awesome. It really. I mean. You can listen to us talk about Jen and Amanda and I talk about the book and it has flaws and it's of its time. And that is definitely true. Having said that, it's an amazing book and it it's understandably a cultural totem and a monument in science fiction turned into a really enjoyable, beautiful, I think had a moment movie. And still there's meat on the bone in the book that if you saw the movie and you're interested, this is also worth 800 or something of reading, <laughs> never, never but it's genre, reading. so it goes quick, except for the parts that are slow. <laughs> um, but, but turns out I really like doing it again. It's been 25 years, I think, since I read it, so I got to be surprised again um, and, and and see it with different eyes. But I was so I was I was my heart was smiling the whole time I was reading Dune, remembering myself as a 12 year old, remembering myself now, looking forward to talking about it and seeing the movie, and really rolled around and had a resplendent time with Dune, and looking forward to being a part of the cultural conversation for for many years to come. And then mm-hmm. I have it, I have a um a booster shot of Dune experience here that I can that brings me into the future a little bit. So that's Dune by Frank Herbert. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Yeah, I heard it has bagpipes. It doesn't. No bagpipes in the book. (laughs) Um, Just what you want in a desert planet, some wind instruments. Yeah, I didn't think about rereads, but getting to reread The Martian this year for our episode about that was was a really fun experience, too, and getting a chance to rewatch that. I think the thing about the the reread of The Martian for me, it's it's almost exactly what I remember, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you know, it's going to a favorite restaurant again. Yeah. Yeah. I have a trio for my next little subcategory. I guess I'm going to call it Get Your Mind Right. Mm. (laughs) Get My Mind Right. Um, And the trio is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover-Tawab. And um, where'd it go? 
I just lost my notes. Oh, and Yoke by Jessamine Stanley. Mm. And so to put them all together, like, I think this is a very Shinsky cocktail, but the ingredients are appealing to people who aren't just comprised like I am. Um, but 4,000 Weeks, which I think you read also, right? You So I think this is only going to ins- Book Ride Insiders. So the, the editors all have um, a three to five sentence recommendation mm. for a gift book that's going out soon. Sorry, you're... I went in to put this in as my pick, and you had already picked it. It made me very upset. I didn't like this at all. And I read it first, and I said, this is great. And, and in Slack, you said, oh, I'm going to read that. And here you are sniping my pick. I, there we go. It's fine. I'm only halfway kidding. I'm not surprised you like it. Speak on it and go through the rest of your list. It, it, it's on my list, too, so yeah. I'm just getting my two cents in here as well. I know. Now I'm the competitive part of me wants to be like, yeah, well, I downloaded the galley in, like, March. <laughs> Right, because you get credit right. for downloading things and not reading them. Yeah, that's, that's we're not that's validating right. her voice here in the get your mind right section. Of the yes, episode. that's right. But okay, so four thousand weeks. The uh, subtitle on this one is time management for mortals, and I loved this because he's like the thing that you are doing when you're reading books about productivity and time management is functionally a treadmill to nowhere. You answer, and we've all seen the memes around this kind of thing, right? Like, what you get to inbox zero just so people can send you more emails that you have to read, <laughs> um, and it, so this is not about time management so that you can be more productive. It's really about how to relate to your time differently and make then better decisions that will result in feeling like you have spent your time doing meaningful things that make you satisfied with your life. So it kind of comes down to really accepting in your bones that your time is finite, that like your life on earth is going to end. And so what you do with it matters. You know, the Mary Oliver, how will you spend your one wild and precious life kind of question. And the reminder that she did not answer that by being like, I became the most productive email responder of all time. Uh, (laughs) She's like, that would be crazy. That would be a crazy zag for Mary Oliver at the end of her life. She's like, you know what? Actually, I'm going to zag. I wish I would have spent more time working to be like the one person that came. Right. I know how to be idle and blessed and how to cross off all the lists on my OmniFocus. <laughs> That's right. Yep. That's right. And all my sheets are, are clean and pressed. Yeah. And I, I love that Berkman takes the angle of like, this is not construct your bucket list and then turn life into checking off those items, thinking that once you've checked them off, you're going to be ready to, you know, call it quits. You're going to be ready to accept the fact that life is over. It's not, um, it's not reducing your life to a to-do list, but understanding really that you have a limited amount of time, functionally a limited amount of energy, and using that framework to help you decide how are you going to spend your time. Um, or as the poet Nick Laird puts it, time is how you spend your love. Um, and that that reframing, I think, is the kind of message that like, if I could download one book from this year into everyone's souls, it's the book that I would send out into the world. It's a, it's perfectly timed for all of the reevaluating that folks have been doing through COVID. If you're a person who's been like part of the great resignation, or you've changed jobs, or you've gotten divorced, or done made some significant changes to the structure of your life, I think it's a perfect moment to read a book like that. Um, and if you're if you've experienced like a, a a serious illness or had someone close to you experience a serious or possibly fatal illness, you have probably bumped up against this question or this issue. I know that some of this thinking is stuff that is already a part of my life because of um, an experience that Bob and I had several years ago. But it is really a shift. It's really transformative to understand your life as 
finite and to make your decisions that way. Do I really want to be doing this thing? Is it really important to me to go have coffee with that person? Why? Just the why of why have I agreed to do this thing or why would I agree to do it? Is there something else that I would rather do with my time? Um, I found it to be really grounding and a nice reminder of a lot of things, a good posing of questions about other parts of life that you might want to evaluate. Just a nice like, hey, take a look around. You know, I I found his voice to be really non-judgmental. It's a very like, here's a way that you might think about this and maybe you'll find it helpful. You know, no shame if you really super care about getting to inbox zero. But if you sit down and think about it a little bit more, you might change your mind about that. And I think Berkman wants us to think about life in, in that way. So I really loved 4,000 Weeks for that. To give like quicker notes, um, Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover Tawab. She's like, I didn't realize this when I read it. She's kind of an Instagram famous therapist. Um, the book mm. is exactly what it sounds like. And it's wonderful for here is actually how a boundary works. Here is how you communicate one. The chapters are broken up into like boundaries at work, boundaries of families, boundaries around parenting, boundaries and friendship, boundaries with money. And she goes into the common kinds of issues that people have in those areas of life that she has seen over and over again in her therapy mm. practice to be like, I don't know. So you have a friend who always borrows money and never pays you back. Here's how you have a conversation with them about here. Like here is what to say about how you need to shift that so that you are less resentful of that relationship or so that person stops saying the thing that drives you nuts. Um, if you're listening to this in time to like download it into your brain before you have to go have holiday dinners with people who like routinely drive you nuts, it, it might be a great resource for that. Um, just super helpful for having really clear language and understanding about how to express things that are difficult to express. Um, a friend recommended it to me that her therapist had recommended to her. It's the kind of thing that I think people are just talking about right now, too. And I found that really useful. Um, and if you're thinking about exploring like a yoga or mindfulness practice or deepening one, I'm going into the new year. Yoke by Jessamine Stanley is part memoir, part sort of explication of the history of the yoga practice, what it is, all the ways that Western predominantly white culture gets it wrong um, and how you can understand what the functions of that might be in your own life. I don't think anybody writes about yoga as clearly and unpretentiously as she does. And I really appreciated it. So those, that's my, you know, triple whammy of uh, stuff to read to question the ways you do all the things in your life. <laughs> uh, to pick up on that thread, my next pick is The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Mm. Um, I read a lot of books about business, finance. You've heard me talk about them before. This is different. Uh, and yet related to everything before, kind of like 4,000 Weeks says, optimize for happiness, right? And sometimes that means not optimizing, right? What, what are mm -hmm. you solving for? I think that the thing in the 4,000 Weeks that really stuck out to me, again, in a language way is like, you don't spend you t your time, you are your time. Yeah. So I, I think that kind of realism is is very welcome and sobering at the same time. And the psychology of money a lot of finance books are like, here's the optimal way to invest your money at this time. But here's tax advantages and compounding interest and this form and this thing and Vanguard 500 uh, S&P index funds and you should do 10% of your savings into X and have this. And what Housel suggests is that that's all rational, but we are not as humans rational. Mm -hmm. The best we can probably hope for is to be reasonable and what is a reasonable relationship to our money? 
and how does being reasonable make you give yourself a little bit of grace for being happy about how you have a relationship with money. So for example, Halsell says, I keep a lot more of my money in cash than is optimal because that makes me feel better than just having it in the stock market. Makes a ton of sense, right? Because what are we actually solving for? Maximizing returns or happiness? And those two things aren't the same. And it sounds obvious and it sounds dumb. It ain't. And I've read a lot of these books and never is it mentioned what do you want, right? I mean, this is something financial advisors maybe do is like say, mm-hmm. what are you actually solving for? But we don't actually, we think more in terms like when do you want to retire? Like which island do you want to retire on? But like, how does your relationship with money affect your daily and weekly life? And how does choosing this versus that matter? And what are, yes, putting it into a, four, you know, saving for 40 years in index fund is probably the best most of us can do. But there are costs that comes along with that because you know why? You don't have that now. And things happen now. You may want to have experiences now. The net present value of money is real. It's a dollar's worth more now than in 50 years. So you need a return on that. On the other hand, you get to remember that really fancy meal you have tomorrow for 400 bucks, say, for the next 30 years. What's the value of that? There's no way of understanding that in the calculated rational way. But it is reasonable to expect people to solve for happiness. And how can you kind of do both, right? Make sure that you have something for retirement, that if something goes wrong in your life, um, and, and, and expresses, he also, he also suggests that this, what's rational and reasonable changes depending on how much money you have. Mm-hmm. It may be reasonable for people with very little to buy lottery tickets because you know why? They have a chance of radically changing their circumstance. Whereas taking those $10 a week in lottery tickets and putting them at S&P 500, not going to do that much, to be honest. It's not going to take them 50 rungs up. Where like, and that's a very reasonable thing to do. Is it rational? No. But is it reasonable? And I find that very enlightening and very liberating and kind of, I guess liberating is the right word because I still want to do well for me and my family and I want other people to do well too, but also let go a little bit of the every marginal dollar that Mm -hmm. I don't have to spend on something needs to go into some bucket that I'm going to take out when I'm 80. And that's, that's okay. And I think there's not a single message about what you should do instead, except that rethink about your should and want. Um, is really, really liberating. So I'm giving that as a gift to several people. I gave it to my dad for his birthday. I think he'll very like it. I, I don't think it does. I think I, like 10,000 or 4,000 weeks, it kind of is good for everybody. Mm-hmm. Does everyone have the ears to hear it? That's a different question. So that's The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Yeah, I think the through line on both of those is you get to define what good means. <laughs> you yes. Know, you get to define what a good use of your time or a good use of your money Mm-hmm. is and That's here's right. a framework for making that definition that's a it's a really powerful way to think about things yeah. um, i think to move on to mine the backlist i'm happiest i read that like i'm happiest i got to this year ah. um was in the dream house by carmen maria machado which i knew would be fantastic i had heard it pitched as the story of an abusive relationship told in a bunch of different genres and i what i assumed was happening and one of the reasons that i held off on reading it was that it would be the same story repeated like retold in a bunch of different genres and what actually happens is that the story moves forward in a relatively linear way you move through like one point of the relationship up into others up into maybe the ultimate end of the relationship and that each moment of that relationship that Machado relates to us is told in a different genre and it's so well rendered 
and so thoughtfully done. Like it blew my mind while I was reading it. Once I realized like, oh, this is the thing that she's doing is she's picking mm. for each moment as this relationship moves forward. What's the genre to tell it in? And then how do you imbue this scene with all the sort of typical elements of this genre that like the planning and thoughtfulness that must have gone into figuring that out of knowing like this thing that happened I want to tell through the lens of science fiction and then this other moment that happened later I will tell using the tropes of a detective story and this one is maybe a comic hmm. just bonkers impressive and creative and because the content is what it is also really bold and brave to tell that kind of story. Um, Carmen Maria Machado is queer. And so this is about a same sex lesbian abusive relationship. And that is a type of relationship that does not get nearly the conversation that it needs the conversational space it needs to have in the culture for people to talk about those experiences. She She's doing so much work here on so many mm. levels. And as soon as I realized like, oh, okay, this is really, I get it why the blurbs were like the story of an abusive relationship told in a bunch of genres, because it's hard to capture without, you know, a four paragraph <laughs> explanation, mm -hmm. what's happening there, it would be it's a really difficult to blurb. I wished that somebody had like cracked the magic on blurbing it fully sooner or that I had just trusted it and picked it up sooner because what a wonderful reading experience just truly a remarkable achievement I think um, and such a creative way of thinking about telling a story I wish that I had read it the day that it came out or before it came out I'm sad that I waited so long I'm glad that I finally got to it um, just one of those that's really hard to capture and just really really terrific we're gonna do a quick sponsor break and uh, come back and finish up the lists I've got Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. 
As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters, and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. They're two for something. We've talked about both of these together. Um, I'm putting them into emotional memoirs that are beautifully written. Um, Crying in Ace Mart by Michelle Zahner and then Somebody's Daughter, of course, by Ashley Ford. Both of them about being a child and a complicated relationship with parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 on the tin for crying in H Mart is the food element. And the on the tin element for Ashley Ford's book is her dad is in jail most of her life. Um, those are both true, but also not necessarily, uh, it's, it's more than that. I guess I should say the somebody's daughter is interesting. The vagueness of, it is because that book is really about being her mother's daughter, mm-hmm. right? Because she doesn't really have a relationship with her father. If it is, it's very slight. And for most of the book, more more of a mystery box of what that looks like and what's going to happen. But thinking about how she comes to understand a relationship with her mother um, in, the, in, the, in the beginning of the book and the end of the book and how you kind of end up there. We both said when talking about it, we could never ever write this book ourselves and our own relationships to our parents are much simpler uh, than what Ashley Ford is doing here um, and really continues to be emotionally creative, I think is how Mm -hmm. I describe Ashley Ford um, in that particular book. And then Michelle really grounds the book in the details of food and uses that to build outward, right? That that specificity becomes grounding for her relationship with her mother, but then also for how to talk about talking about um, her mother's fate, her relationship with her mother and everything that happens. They did it both on audio, both really great there. You've heard us talk about them before, so I'm not going to belabor it, but I did want to mention here, Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford in Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, I should say, also appearing on a bunch of best of nonfiction, yes. <laughs> not a surprise. I like things people like. I don't know what to tell you. I would just add to that category because I loved both of those, but also The Ugly Cry by Danielle Henderson. Also mm. a memoir about a difficult childhood. She's really, really funny um, and makes some really hard moments also able to be dark and funny. I think it would have had more breathing room if it wasn't published around the same time as Somebody's Daughter was. Uh, and I loved Somebody's Daughter. But those are two really similar books at the same moment. And it's hard to compete with the kind of like marketing event that Somebody's Daughter was as well, which That's is well deserved, you know, a yeah. great book. And Ashley Ford deserves all of that success. I would have liked to see Daniel Henderson's book get the same kind mm. of readerly attention. Uh, let's see. I have to shout out A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdurraqib, but I've talked about it on like half of the podcast episodes this year. (laughs) So we're just going to mention that one. If you're interested in the analysis of art, performance, particularly black art by a black essayist who is analyzing his own performance in the world as well, it's phenomenal. Please, everyone, read it. Um, Where else to go? I guess that sort of jogs talking about music, I just read and really enjoyed Major Labels by Khalifa Senna, Mm. um, which I've found myself wanting to read more about music in the last few years. And I'm listening Mm. to several podcasts about music. I don't know how that happened. It was just sort of an organic like snowball thing. But I really loved 
getting a sort of comprehensive history of American music and he takes it through the lens of different genres and moves you up through like here is how R&B first came to be and on the American scene what were the significant moments who were the big players how did it change over time if you're a child of the late 80s early 90s like I am the stuff about what alternative and rock was in that moment and what a weird time it was because you could turn on an alt rock station and really hear like 17 different genres of music that now all have their own very siloed rabbit holes on Spotify or other streaming services. Just the understanding of how technology has shifted, what it means to be a music fan and some of those different genres and then what like the big signpost moments were that changed those types of music was really, really fascinating to me. And since for the last year, I've been listening to a Ringer podcast um, by Rob Harvilla called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, where he Which goes, is coming to an end, right? It We're is. It's done. coming to I'm an end. I'm very sad for you. Are you, are, you, are you pre-morning? I know. I am pre-morning. And there's so there's only like three or four episodes left. And there's at mm. least a dozen songs in my head that I'm like, is he going to do an episode about this song? Like, we are almost to the end of this. And he has not talked about Mr. Jones. <laughs> I just don't know how that's possible. <laughs> So I hope Rob Hervilla is ready for my angry podcast listener <laughs> email. Your, but, the primacy of counting crows in your cultural firmament is one of your great blind spots. Is <laughs> not, you've you've misweighted, you've misallocated your caring. I don't know. For you lived counting through crows. 1993 in music, and it's not. It doesn't have a spot of primacy. Like I'm going to make you mad. <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish were nine times more important than Counting Crows in the 90s. So there we go. I'm sorry. Let's go. Oh, I love this pick. This is like every music journalist in the world is rolling their eyes right now. But they're all wrong. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> you you know, can roll your eyes all you want because music journalists always get it right. Well, Khalifa Senna gets it right. Yes. I'm bringing it back. Major Labels is really wonderful. And I found that the kinds of tidbits I was picking up and really loving from the like music historians and the journalists that Harvilla has on 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, I was getting those, but about all the genres and about all parts of music history, because Senna's not just doing stuff that came out in the 1990s. It was really satisfying. I'm, I think you and I are both like pretty eclectic yes. music listeners. And so it, it was just really fun to then to read something and then it would like something similar would come up when I had Spotify on shuffle and I would get to look at Bob and be like did you know like I'm just full of did you knows about all kinds of music now and I've I like knowing about the things I enjoy. Um, so I there think, you go. That's that's. I couldn't say it better myself. Yeah, yeah I found major labels that. to be really satisfying on that front. And I will forgive you for being wrong about the artistic significance of Adam Duritz. I'm not saying artistic, cultural, cultural significance. Anyway, uh, si- sidebar. I don't know if I told you this. There's a book coming out. It may be out now. Um, or coming in January, called Lightning Strikes. It's a history of rock and 10 guitar solos. <laughs> and I am so in. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I'm very excited about this uh, as well. I'm going to go, where am I going to go next? Um, my favorite audiobook experiences mm-hmm. of the year. I'm going to twin these. You've heard me talk about them both on the show before. Um, Taste by Stanley Tucci and Bourdain, the oral biography. Oh. Curated, written by assembled by, produced by, I guess, maybe is the best way to describe this, Laurie Williver, longtime um, collaborator with Bourdain. It's interesting that taste is, I think to me, like 
a pure, clean expression of what we can like about one thing audiobooks do well that books can't and really other things. A re pro uh, text, text mm. experience of books don't, which is you get the voice of the person writing, especially a memoir. And Stanley Tucci radiates a warmth and urbanity and welcomeness and sophistication, kind of like almost like Claire in the same way of it's both inviting and also with standards to some degree, right? There's a right way and a wrong way of doing things. And sometimes that can be nice. That can be elevating if done with the warmth that Stanley Tucci does it. And then Bourdain, the autobiography, is the polyphony that you can do about having vert of a bunch of people in Bourdain's life tell their stories in their own voices or, in some cases, having an actor represent their voices. And it's a little bit blurry. There's a sheet you can get to who's actually the person who's not. I think ultimately that doesn't matter, but that polyphonic element of bringing these voices together is a document that we wouldn't get 10 years ago before audiobooks mm -hmm. were a thing. We wouldn't do this on tape. They wouldn't, I don't know. It's more like, I guess, almost a Burnsian documentary, but all the talking heads are the people involved. Uh, so anyway, those two audiobooks are great. And these are great audiobooks, great on great for a taste by Stanley Tucci and Bourdain, the oral biography. Produced by is now the verb I'm mm -hmm. going to use, um, Lori Welliver. I'm going to stay sad that I did not listen to the Tucci. <laughs> it's it, it's it's too bad. I mean I mean I, I mean that with all affection for both of us. Like yeah, I think that's if you had to go back and yeah. do it in time and, and, and reformat yourself. Uh -huh. Show title. I would um, I would reformat would myself in that way. Um, one that I can't say was even a favorite, but I think it's a read I needed this year mm. was. The Premonition, A Pandemic Story hmm. by Michael Lewis. Um, right. You've talked about this. It right. came out in May. I made myself wait until I was fully vaccinated to read it. <laughs> if you felt gaslit through a lot of the first year of the pandemic, mm. or if you felt like, shouldn't there be a grown up in the room? But why is all the messaging so confusing can't they agree what the f is happening at the cdc this explains it um he does his michael lewis thing and goes back to anchor some of the main players in early covid days in the early parts of their career so we get to understand um, how a person becomes like an infectious disease expert or a public health person and what the responsibilities and limitations of those positions are what the relationships between like local jurisdictional public health people and the cdc is or isn't um how hard it is to be a person who's responsible for making those kinds of decisions yeah. and policies and then what the incentives and disincentives especially on the part of the cdc are for doing things like issuing tight restrictions like lockdowns or travel bans or all kinds of things and some of the reasons he goes into depth about some of the reasons that the cdc in relatively recent history is now gun shy about declaring that something is going to be a big problem, issuing a big restriction around it, and it turning out that they were wrong, and now everybody is mad at them. Um, I feel like I spent a lot of 2020 being really angry about how things mm. were handled, and I can stay angry about it, but Michael Lewis helped me understand how and why those things happened, and maybe which structures to be angry at, and which structures mm. were just sort of caught up in this relatively broken system. It was helpful to me to understand 
how these things occur, <laughs> how we end up with what seems like a relatively poor government response, and that it wasn't just because the Trump administration was in control. That was certainly part of it. But the history and sort of the big picture of this, and Lewis is particularly good at telling a complicated story like that through the lens of a couple people that he makes into the primary characters uh -huh. of the book. So it also, it doesn't read like fiction, but it has a pace to it. And there's folks that you get to know and some voice and, you know, if you like Michael Lewis, you know what you're getting here. If you haven't read mm -hmm. Michael Lewis, but you're looking for a little, I know I found it validating. I found it very illuminating. It kind of gave me a list of like running things that I wish to hear future presidential candidates address. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it was useful. It's a very useful reading experience. I'm not quite ready to saddle up on my nonfiction pandemic reading, to be honest with you. I thought I was getting it ready. And now we've got this other variant and the future is a little bit more in doubt about when I'm going to be on the other side of being mm -hmm. on the other side, because there's several books coming out, like the folks at Pfizer that developed the vaccine over there have a book coming out. There's another one that's kind of a race between Moderna and Pfizer kind of a narrative. I'm interested in both of those because they have a science and business piece that I, I find very interesting. I find myself less interested in, in downloading the galley of either of those today <laughs> as I stand here. Uh -huh. I thought I would be ready for premonition sooner rather than later, but there's going to be a lot of interesting books that come mm -hmm. out um, about this. And I think Michael Lewis had an early uh, crack at it. And from what I what you've said and others have said, sounds like it's an important piece of the story. And a lot of it is human messiness, right? Yeah. Um, and the premonition. Um, my last set of, I guess, I, I guess I'd put right in the center, and you'll hear why in a minute with my rest of the picks of, of, of books, Two, I'll put them on my business books list. My two, I think, most illuminating mm -hmm. for me um, books as it relates to business. I think I frantically texted you about both of them <laughs> and other people at our company, Amanda and Clinton. Uh, the first, maybe I got cut up in it because I was found it so fascinating. Maybe I was high on life. Maybe maybe I'd had too many um, sugary Trader Joe's <laughs> snacks. But becoming Trader Joe by Joe Columba, <laughs> the titular Trader Go, the founder of Trader Joe's. His history of Trader Joe's, really up until it was acquired by, I didn't know this, the same company that owns Aldi, owns Trader mm -hmm. Joe's, bought them in the, the late 80s, tells you what happened and how Trader Joe's became a really unusual player in your grocery store firmament, right? Most of them are owned by giant corporations, be it Kroger's or Publix or other kinds of places, a privately held grocery store that doesn't sell Coke and Oreos. It, when you think about it, it's a very strange institution in American life. And there's, it's re, he's, his own business acumen is strange and unusual and built a strange and unusual company. Um, and I felt like I learned a lot about running a business or what you can do in creative thinking and using inefficiencies and trusting customer taste and trusting your own instinct. And you don't have to do things the way that um, Safeway does it. You won't do this. You'll have different experiences and different successes and failures, but there's other ways of doing things that are valuable. And I, I read it. It was like a thriller <laughs> to me, honestly. Like, this is why there's two buck chuck. This is why there's so much nuts and cheese. Like, I find it all so fascinating. <laughs> I like to know more about the things I like. I like Trader Joe's. I like business. I don't know what to tell you. I'm bringing my whole heart here. Don't judge. Uh, it was, I think I made an audible, like, oh, noise when I got that text. It was like, Rebecca, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, this book slaps. I'm like, this is, there has not been a more Jeff O'Neill text to receive. <laughs> And in the best, most affectionate way. 
And so far, no one I know has also read this, so I don't have any sort of external correlative to, to judge myself on, and I'm fine with oh, that. Oh, yeah. If never, I'm fine. I'm I, fine. Uh, related, oh, go ahead. If saying, you wanna, I, wanna, you, I have I, one more on that. I want to read that, but it. I'm equally happy to only experience it through you giving me the highlight. <laughs> yeah. Can I also say, speaking of um, idiosyncratic, wholehearted recommendations, the number of people that emailed us that they went and bought The Orchard maybe the most sustaining thing that's ever happened to me in my professional life. And and to the point where the first one I got, they're like, I saw the price of the paperback going up. And so I took a screen cap of the ranking of the orchard at that moment. And I think, I think I, we may have jumped the orchard up 50,000 places. In the, now again, we're starting from a low number. But I think we moved it from like number 200 to like number 125 bestseller in books, <laughs> which is kind of wild. That's and wonderful. now you can't get a paperback cheaper for $30. And it used to be you could get it for eight. Now, again, if you get six of 20, that's going to do it. But, but I had a very, I've had a very small like, isn't this funny? And I hope everyone enjoys it. And no one has emailed me yet that they've actually read the thing. So again, it could come back and like, Jeff, you are a weirdo. And this is, this is a cul-de-sac of interest that no one needs to follow you down. But I hope someone out there, and out there meaning the people in, that I work with, that I've recommended to, that I trust with my livelihood and my family's future fortune will actually... No, I'm kidding. I'm, now I'm putting too much... Uh, I, I'm uh, hyperbolizing no there. But I really liked it. I thought it was great. I love... I really do like histories of companies that I know something about because I have an experience as a consumer and this one was really great. On the other tip, the most indicting one for me uh, on the year that I, I still, I'm going to have to reread. I did an audio. I'm going to have to buy a print copy so that I have it for reference is You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy, which is about listening mm -hmm. and how bad we are at it. Um, in particular, how bad we are in certain circumstances. Um, it's something... I think we all know is important. Uh, it's something I think about myself, given my personality, my my interpersonal habits, my position of power within the culture and within my company. Uh, there's a I got to read this several times because I had a lot of ahas, a lot of I wish I could um, ear underline it. Right? You know, we've <laughs> talked about the difficulty of audiobook note taking. Uh, I don't know, man. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot I still have to grok, and it's going to take habit-forming kinds of practice on my part to do some of this stuff. Um, came out last year, so I guess this is technically a, a backlist book, but boy, oh boy, mm -hmm. Rebecca, you're not listening by Kate Murphy. That's on my list also, um, which I think Kelly Jensen, one of our colleagues, talked about how much she loved it last mm. year, and I had it in galley form still in my iPad. <laughs> And when you mentioned it a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, right, I think that's sitting there. And I've been meaning to get to it. So let's do that. Um, so I can confirm being able to highlight things is incredibly useful yeah. <laughs> for that book. But I also found it really illuminating, both in understanding like what's going on when a person is listening to me that makes me feel heard and then what you can practice that makes the people that you listen to feel heard and it's grounded in research and like deeply reported and also has fascinating people in it like i love that she's like let me do a book about listening and i think i'll go talk <clears throat> to the chief interrogator of the cia <laughs> unbelievable stuff <laughs> it's so good but it, you're right there's there are just really practical bits it's not presented as like a workbook there's not a formula in it no. like there is in like set boundaries find peace you have to glean your own 
oh, this is how this relates to this type of conversation that I have. But it's not difficult to do. She presents everything so well. And I think if you're trying to come to conversations with a like a moment of mindfulness for like, what am I trying to achieve in this conversation? Mm. And what do I want the other person to walk away having experienced? Or what are we trying to create here together when we're talking? It has some really wonderful things that like, if I was going to put three of them on bullet points and stick them on my laptop and stare at them every time I have a phone call, it might be life changing. I, I think I, I agree with you. I think that's why I need to go back and like, somehow put them into my repertoire of, you know, mon- almost like mantras that I use as checks on myself. And there are several of them and they've become cliches for myself and others that work <laughs> with me to some degree. But I, I could use this and felt very personally, whatever the opposite of indicted um, is the op- hmm. there. There's work I knew I needed to do and that we all need to do. But I think I especially uh, have a lot to learn here. So I think eventually I, I'd seen it early and it's right up my alley when it came out and again january of 2020 yeah. new year then we're in pandemic and i just i wasn't ready for to listen better um at that point and i put on libby and the weight hold was forever and finally it came up and i and i, I did it so it was a little bit of serendipity that it came at a moment i was ready to get back more into not just surviving the world but actually working on myself a little bit mm-hmm. um so it was a welcome mode there i think we need to get towards the end i've got a couple wrap-up things what else what's left Let's on your see. list Rebecca? just a couple wrap-ups i gotta give a shout out to jonathan franzen i enjoyed crossroads a lot i think in a year that it wasn't competing with clara and the harlem shuffle <laughs> and matrix and louise yeah. Erdrich, yeah. it might have been higher up my list not a perfect book but some of those 600 pages could go. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that we read it. I, it was fun to talk about. Um, let's see. And for just delightful backlist that I think I picked up uh, when you read it and said that it was enjoyable, but I just had it sitting around for a while. My first post-vaccinated trip to the beach, I sat in the sun and read Evie Drake Starts Over. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And it was That's like a good ex- one. I just needed to feel light, needed to do something fluffy, but not you know unsubstantial. And Evie Drake was perfect for it. It was a well-timed recommendation. You mentioned it at like the right moment. I was like, all right, I've got that. And I'm glad that I read that this year too. Awesome. I'm going to mention books. I believe I talked about mid-year. So and they they remain on my list. Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri and The Man Who Lived Underground by Richard Wright. You can go back and listen to our. Um, best books of the year so far mm-hmm. list. Both of them are novellas and kind of character studies. Um, and both of them are extreme or I, I guess almost Baroque versions of what they both do well. Lahiri with like internal looking at the world, trying to figure themselves out, a young woman, or I guess I, I don't know, young, young means different things. Now. I'd say she's in her early to mid thirties living in Italy, who's an academic slash writer, who's on the cusp of making a life change um, and walking around Italy thinking. Lahiri's great at that. She's in Italy. Really good stuff. Man Who Lived in the Ground was the Richard Wright, which we talked about on the show, both as a story and then of itself, because it was this book that Wright did not publish in his lifetime. Long story short, because he was worried about what the reaction would be, because it is about not just police brutality, but systemic racism, institutional racism, and a, a guy who's in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong system, gets picked up for something he didn't do, he escapes, and what he has to do to try to stay stay alive becomes an absurdist nightmare. That really is a, a linkage between late right and what Ellison does in Invisible Man, not surprising, Underground is a, a titular 
word here and then you know invisible man begins and ends with someone telling their story from a cave underground um i'm the right and ellison scholars probably been talking about this but as an amateur right ellison rivalry lineage armchair observer i got a lot here this was my get back for beatles people this was oh. me this was my experience of like oh look at this and look at this and oh look at the connection so i had a real galaxy brain um but also a wonderful piece uh, of fiction in itself. My other two, I'm going to Kids Dad's Corner. My favorite two family reads of the year. Again, I've mentioned the Vander Beekers of 141st Street series before. The latest installment, Make a Wish, continues the delightful, charming, heartwarming, complicated uh, story of the Vander Beeker mixed race family living in Harlem. Um, and the hijinks they get into and the you know, it's it's just, I, I hope my kids, I think they will remember it like I remember my, my dad reading Chronicles of Narnia to me and my brothers um, mm. in a slightly different way. Uh, I, I've chosen to read that aloud rather than do it on audio because it slows it down and we get to do voices and have a good time to greet her. Kareneon Glazer, former Book Riot contributor. It's a, supposedly optioned by Hello Sunshine, which got sold. Who knows where any of this stuff is now? Um, Anyway, continues to be great. And then I think our favorite family read that I keep looking for comps for, it's called The Parker Inheritance um, by Varian Johnson. It's a middle grade novel um, about a, a two black children who become unlikely friends and have a mystery to solve um, and a name to clear. And boy, did we love it on our <laughs> Yellowstone road trip back and forth listening on audio together. We still talk about it. So if you're looking for a title with different kinds of voices, but we also like mysteries, I find that's one thing that people like. In fact, a friend of mine texted me a link to Book Riot of 50 kids, great kids mysteries. And I think mm. there's a lot of us looking for mysteries because adults and kids like it at the same time. Um, so that would be my pick there. If you've got a family situation, you're looking for something to read together, a read aloud road trip or even just has a kid who likes reading mysteries. That's The Parker Inheritance by Varian Johnson. Do we have time for me to shout out one more that you jogged? One more. You get, to, you get to put a cap on it. Yep. All right. Um, something you said talking about novellas reminded me. I read The Office of Historical Corrections by Daniel Evans mm. early this year. It came out in 2020. I was not in a place where I could do short stories about race and grief in 2020. Um, really wonderful. The title story the office of historical uh, corrections is about a woman who like finds herself working for a government agency that literally goes around and corrects the plaques on historical things hmm. to either like remove euphemistic language or to tell the truth about what was going on in this battle or in this place especially as it relates to america's history of racism and then there's more sort of grounded in reality ones i think often about a story about a white college student who um a photo of her wearing a confederate flag swimsuit goes viral and she tries to mm. like rebrand herself basically and and manage her reputation when that comes out that kind of story told by a really sharp young black writer is just a really wonderful reading experience and i i loved office of historical corrections if you're looking for short stories to read it's hard to do better than daniel evans is just breadth of skill and the, the ways that she tells the stories that she's telling and i don't know i have a late breaking one that i texted you about last night i'm reading the new i've Barry been wanting i didn't i did i didn't counter because i've been circling that one too maybe a brief moment for things that may or may not make our list for the rest of the year because it's not done i'm in the middle of hell of a book i do stop it because i'm reading something for Adaptation Nation. I'm in the middle of, on audio, Mel Brooks's um, oh. memoir, which 
Oh. I mean, watch out, Stanley Tucci, for getting the bump for Memoir of the Year. Maybe just because, the, frankly, Mel the Brooks. career is more interesting. I mean, come on. Come on, a living legend. Oh, I mean, it's interesting right to look pick. at Mel Brooks. Yeah. I, we didn't t- I mean, it's not really what we do, but I, Mel Brooks is one of those people that I'm going to be glad that I was alive at the same time. Kind of like Sondheim, because in 50 mm. years, it's like, you were alive when Sondheim and Mel Brooks were <laughs> and Tony Moore. Like, that's, it, those are the people, right? The, the, mm-hmm. That's the kind of like, these are the titans of popular, um, in, in high entertainment or upper middle brow or whatever else you want to say. But I'm so glad that Mel Brooks um, did this and did it in time, because what a career. Uh, so that's on my list of could be usurpers if yes. you know i had 21 more days <laughs> of uh, data here yeah i have like 50 pages left in the new gary steingart novel our country friends which is about a kind of failed writer a struggling writer who is on a like farm colony situation in upstate mm. new york at the start of the pandemic and several of his and his wife's friends come to stay with them to ride out what they think at that mm. time you know is going to be a short experience so it's in the framework of the pandemic occurring but really it's the gang gets back together these are college friends plus one very famous actor and they're in this contained space like bumping up against each other in a stressful situation some of them have decades of history and drama and it's just richly written the characters are fun to read the voices are really enjoyable i think it's maybe my first gary steingart novel i've read some of his nonfiction. you didn't read super sad true love story that was a hot minute a while ago yeah Hmm, i didn't and I don't know how it would compare, but I had read enough reviews of this that were like, this is really kind of fun. And it is, it is fun. I'm waiting to see. It's not light. It is fun. I'm waiting to see how he's going to tie it all up. But I think it could usurp a spot or at least just like nudge its way onto my list of favorite things for the year. I feel like this came out the wrong time of year. and, And it probably wasn't done. I feel like if it could have come out this summer, it may have been, I don't know. It came out late. It feels like a weird... It didn't feel like a fall book. It felt like it should have been like the May, like literary, like maybe a slightly more literary, or maybe not than like the Jay Courtney Sullivan, Emily Henry, mm-hmm. Emma Straub genre. Um, but anyway, I'm looking forward. To, and I read the I read the jacket copy in Powell's the other day because I knew it was coming out, and I was like, oh, I think I feel like I want to read this. Yeah. So I'm so glad to hear. Uh, you'll have to hear how he lands the plane because that can matter in a situation. Yeah, it's a little heavier than like the Jay Courtney Sullivan yes. gang gets back together yes. vibe, yeah. but very enjoyable. Right. Good year. Well, that's Good our year show. in books. Wonderful year. Um, you can find the list, all the books we talk about, bookriot.com slash listen. Next episode, we're doing the best of our, our favorite non-books things of the year. And this, I made my list already, Rebecca. And let me just say that if there is an edge case of idiosyncrasy, it's going to be my picks for this year. <laughs> I, I'm ready. I'm going to be very specific and very personal. Um, don't worry. It's not a TMI situation, but... Let's just say I haven't got out a lot this year, so <laughs> I cannot wait for what this is going to be. I haven't made my list yet. Yeah, I, some of these are going to have to go, but I just started writing stuff down, like Jack Kerouac automatic writing style. And let's just say it's a document that I might have to just tuck away for the future. You know, like for my kids, for oh, my man. for my for the archivists. <laughs> I will. I'm. Preemptively requesting access to the whole list. Uh, I think I'm going to bury it, you know, kind of like those seed vaults or like the that, that Margaret Atwood's doing in forests in Norway. Like in a hundred years, people could look at this. We made it so time. far. Okay. Have a good one. <laughs>